0: How do I define American? How do you define being an American? God damn, this is hard. (laughs) America to me is a place of hopes and dreams. I define American as my story. I define American as my family's story. My immigrant mama. My grandparents, H.T. and Lian Ling, came to this country in 1948. They came over with $200 in their pockets and we settled in New York
1: City. They came here because of uh, the promise of pursuing your hopes and your dreams. She taught
0: piano, she cleaned houses.
1: He joined the army and he fought against Hitler. My dad just kind of saw an NBA game. At the time he saw Kareem Abdul-Jabbar.
0: Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, famous for the sky Skyhook. Uh, and my dad just fell in love with the game of basketball. My identity and and my place as an American has always been questioned. Hi
1: listeners, welcome to Immigrantly, a weekly podcast that features deeply personal conversations around race, identity, and the immigrant experience by revolutionizing storytelling. This is your host, Sadia Khan, and what you just heard was a clip from Define American's 10-year anniversary video reminding us of the vast and amazing voices and faces behind the immigrant identity. For a long time, Define American has harnessed storytelling as an indispensable tool and medium for humanizing the immigrant narrative. When I look at their work, I feel invigorated, a kindred connection, because so much of their vision is shared by this podcast and the larger immigrant community. You know, sometimes stories get a rep for being fuzzy, like too much emotions, or too few measures. Nevertheless, Immigrantly has persisted, and you all are still here, for which I am so grateful. We are proof that storytelling is powerful. That storytelling, in all its messiness, is charged with tremendous personal and cultural meaning. Today's episode spotlights that power. It is on Define Americans' work in journalism, storytelling, and advocacy for immigrants and in immigration. We have Liz Robbins, the Director of Journalism Partnerships, on to speak about the organization and a recent report she co-authored with Sarah E. Lowe and Victoria Bulabasov. The report is called Reimagining Immigrant News. North Carolina's case for the nation. The report was the outcome of a year-long project in collaboration with the Media Ecosystems Analysis Group and the University of Florida's Center for Public Interest Communications. The research was concerned with understanding to what extent news outlets produce accurate, nuanced portrayals of immigrants and how the stories about Immigrants Impact Public Attitudes. Interesting, right? As part of their investigation, Liz and her team poured through 22 North Carolinian print and digital sources, interviewed over 50 stakeholders, and surveyed more than 1,100 consumers from the state. Talk about really dissecting an issue. In the interview, Liz and I discuss in depth the results of the report, the surprises, and the learnings, and where we go from here. So let's get started. Liz, I'm so excited to have you on Immigrantly and share this physical space with me. So before we dive into the report, how are you feeling today? How is your heart? My heart is full.
0: And I'm hopeful. Huh. I have to say, I don't want to get too political because, of course, last night... Let's get political,
1: Is <laughs> I want us to be political on it's this podcast.
0: Okay. I'm hopeful. I'm not as disappointed as I thought I might be. But as a journalist, I'm also very careful to not take sides. But I am taking sides of good journalism and truth, and I do think in many states, truth and justice did win out. I'm trying not to get too frustrated and disappointed with some of the southern states. You know, I see some good advances, and I also see some hope for the future and some learning lessons for this country. One thing I will say, and I've just been reading some exit polls— Immigration is not the issue the Republicans were making it out to be. Oh wow. Uh so far I have seen that it has not been had the most impact despite all those terrible ads that I was seeing on the Major League Baseball playoffs. So why do you think that is the case? I think there are other things that are just at the forefront of Americans right now. For example, the economy, hmm. abortion, there are other issues that obviously the pandemic and how that affects us all, that are uh, more prevalent. And that's both good and bad. There is, of course, Florida, which, (laughs) which is very disconcerting to see the Latino vote. But I think as we've learned over the last six years, it is too hard to say red wave, blue wave. This is happening because of immigrants. Everything is nuanced. And it's up to us as journalists and news consumers to understand the issues. It's not going to be easy to decipher, Hmm. but we have to find out what are the causes? Why are certain groups of immigrants voting the way they are? And what does this mean? So that's what I'm most interested in today. On a side note, I just have to say, Today is Wednesday, three days after the New York City Marathon. And this, to me, is the greatest example of humanity. People coming from all over the world, people running and walking and wheeling, to prove that they can do it. So I'm still flush with this feeling. I I wrote a book about the New York City Marathon that really showed humanity can come together. New York City comes together (laughs) on this one day. All the boroughs, including Staten Island, which is very Republican, but also very full of immigrants. So I'm still feeling this. Literally, I didn't actually run, but I rode as a bicycle escort, as a volunteer Ah, for the wheelchair professionals. I love it. This is inspiration. Mm. And so I like to see that of humanity. This serves a purpose why I'm talking about it, and we'll get to this later, because we all have these parts to us beyond politics and i think as news consumers we need to see what brings us together Absolutely. instead of what drives us apart
1: and liz just to give our listeners context we are recording On the day after the midterm elections, the episode will release sometime end of November or beginning of December. But Liz and I are just talking about this because of how we are feeling. And as you, my heart is filled with gratitude. We put up a good fight. We are not there yet, but we are not worse off than what we thought we would be. Right. And I want to give a shout out to a specific demographic. Gen Z, you are the best <laughs> Thank generation. Thank you, Gen Z. <laughs> Thank you, Gen Z, for organizing, for your empathy, for your compassion, for your collective responsibility. And I say this on my podcast so often that we have to sometimes move away from this hyper individualistic Mm -hmm. mindset that a lot of Americans have. Gen Z gives me hope. They are thinking about not just themselves, but their communities, their people, other people who are unable to vote. Everybody has a voice, but some people don't have that platform to articulate thoughts. So thank you, Gen Z. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm a godparent
0: to two Gen Zers. Oh, wow. I can see how concerned they are for the community, Mm -hmm. for the earth, for social justice. I mean, I'm lucky. But let's also say, go Gen X. (laughs) (laughs) I know my voice may not sound it, but I am. And there are so many of us who are doing this Mm. fight. And I don't know, let's not forget the millennials, too. But right. I, you know as we're doing shout-outs, you never want to leave anyone out. But, <laughs> but look, Gen Z, keep it up.
1: Yeah. Solis. I am so excited to talk to you about this particular report. But before that, before our conversation, before we started recording this interview, Liz and I were talking about how she used to work in the sports realm. So you started off your career in sports reporting, and then you switched to politics and immigration. What? (laughs) How did this happen? It's not as different
0: as you might think, Sabia. It's not. So I was an athlete in high school, certainly benefiting from Title IX. I played four sports in high school and ended up playing lacrosse in college. But at the same time, I was a reporter and editor on my university newspaper, the Cornell Daily Sun, And I thought, okay, well, first of all, I think I'll have a career in journalism instead of sports, (laughs) Uh, actually being an athlete. But I really enjoyed not only covering women's sports professionally when I became a sports writer, but I was an NBA writer. A lot of people may not—some people do remember me, but I was the national columnist for the New York Times covering the NBA, and I covered the Nets. And the Knicks. So, yes, um, I covered the Nets when they were actually better than the Knicks, uh, if you can believe this for all you New Yorkers out there. But one of the things that I was really proud of was a column that I wrote Mm. my first year on the Beat as a Columnist, and it was called Faces from Afar. So I wrote about the foreign players, the international players for the NBA. I was just fascinated by their stories, how they got to be in the NBA, how they began, whether it was in a freezing gym in the country of Georgia, wearing gloves, shooting free throws, or in Turkey, I I just, or Cameroon, I really got to know these players, and I was really appreciative of that. That said, I also just love the game of basketball, so um, it really is a fast paced electric game, and I was just privileged to have a front row seat. I will say I was probably in the 10% of women covering sports, and I've always been somewhat of an outsider in everything that I have done. Our listeners can't see, but I'm five foot six, which isn't all that tall in basketball, but pretty tall in the in the real world. Somewhat blonde, and so I would be going into these locker rooms, and you know how you do this: you prepare, you do your hard work, you have somebody really tall who's a guy in front of you, you know, basically <laughs> blocking you out. But you just prove yourself. So how do you prove yourself? By working harder and by getting the story right. And but
1: do you think that is by enough? caring?
0: Oh, it'll never be enough for some people. I'm very grateful that I wasn't in the Twitter age of female sports writing uh, because—or being a female while uh, being a sports writer, because it's almost as bad, if maybe worse, than being an immigration reporter. I mean, I got death threats as an immigration reporter, especially the day after I did a story on Ramadan, and it was right after— Orlando and and the shootings in the nightclub, and it was just, it it was very hard. I would get a lot of threats. And this is, of course, Twitter, which is, who knows, in the time this airs, if it'll still be around. But as a sports writer, I just had to have a thick skin. So I think that was good training. But here's where it's all leading to. So 15 years of covering Olympics, U.S. Open tennis, and the NBA, I said, yeah, I really want to do more. So I wrote a book on the New York City Marathon, and I said, I loved covering the city and the vibrancy that you see in all the neighborhoods. So I asked the New York Times, I said, I want to switch. And they're like, oh, I don't know. You're a sports writer. I'm like, well, (laughs) I have a brain, and, uh, you know, I really understand so much more than just basketball. So I wrote this book, and, and then afterwards I worked on the breaking news desk. Like, remember when the plane landed in the Hudson? I was covering that and, you know, disasters around the world. And then they said, okay, I think you can do this. And I transitioned to the metro department. I covered Brooklyn. I was the Brooklyn bureau chief. Ah. So I was in every neighborhood of Brooklyn.
1: Anything fun or... Oh, everything was fun. Everything was fun, right? But anything that you uncovered about Brooklyn that New Yorkers may not know about?
0: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, it was certainly when I was covering it, it was right at the heart of, you know, so much gentrification happening in Crown Heights and all over Brooklyn. And so I was really chronicling the older immigrant neighborhoods Mm -hmm. that were transforming and the clash that was going on there. I also wrote about this, you know, the characters of Brooklyn. And I got to know some of the politicians, which, uh, that that was an interesting story. Let me get back to you on that as far as uncovering. I just went to every single neighborhood and hung out in Uzbek neighborhoods. A lot of times I would be covering things after an event that could have been a tragedy like shootings or a terrorist event and also a lot in reaction to when President Trump, who was not then president, was running and so much of his anti-immigrant rhetoric. Hmm. And so how different neighborhoods reacted to this. And this, at this point in 2015, I became the immigration reporter.
1: So you made that switch against the backdrop of yep. political change that was taking place yes. in
0: the U.S. Yes. And 2015 was fascinating because, it, you know, you still have the end of Obama, the beginning of what Trump is proclaiming. And, I mean, let's not fool ourselves. Obama was not terrific overall Thank you for, for, saying that. for immigrants. And I wrote about family detention centers in Pennsylvania at the Burks Detention Center where mothers— Had a hunger strike, but you can almost see what was coming. For instance, I wrote about a family of Syrian refugees. You may recall this in December of 2015. Midair, they were scheduled, right? They had already been cleared by the UN, they had been prepared to go to Indianapolis. Midair, then Governor Mike Pence said, no, you're not allowed. Mm. So this family of three with a a small child had prepared to be in Indiana, and then they needed to go somewhere else. And they were taken in by a refugee agency in New Haven, Connecticut. And so I broke that story in December. And (laughs) it was pretty foreboding for what would happen, but also the humanity, how people reacted and welcomed this lovely family. So, I mean, look, the pizza is certainly better in New Haven. Um, (laughs) Having covered a lot of events in Indianapolis, I would certainly rather be in New England than I would be in Indianapolis. No offense to the Pacers or the Indy 500. So that was fascinating. But I, I would say what I really enjoyed covering, but got to know DACA recipients during this time, And here's what was really interesting. In 2015, they felt almost secure enough. Not quite, but they shared their stories with me reluctantly. And I got to know, like, people in finance, teachers, a nurse who became a lawyer, who's Hmm. an activist. So they were really fundamental in how I was reporting. And then from there, I covered Teachers for Teach for America, who are undocumented, and how this program lifted them up. So I had a basis of reporting that when I got to 2017, the day that the Trump administration ended DACA, well, of course, we know it's still going on, but I knew I could go to these sources and I understood what the consequences would be.
1: So this basically, you we're seeing humanity at work. You were seeing the depth and breadth of the immigrant experience, the vast spectrum of immigrant identity. And that's how you started to work more and more in immigration, right? Absolutely. Um, and and it, that's the greatest thing about New York. You don't need
0: a passport. And I hung out in the Bronx with Ghanaians. During the World Cup, I actually—so this is back in 2014. It was me and and 20 Ghanaians in a bodega, like, with, you know, it was no air conditioning, and they're all singing, and they're all watching the World Cup game, Ghana versus U.S., and they're all singing in twee, and I had so much fun. And there's me, like, in the corner, right? I I mean, (laughs) you know, I didn't fit, but I was enjoying it. And then I ended up going back and wrote about a Ghanaian hip-life star, and then I wrote about— Guiana mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, and both Afro-Guyanese and Indo-Guyanese, and understanding where the community is different, and covering a, a murder trial that roiled the community and split mm-hmm. them in half. So,
1: yes, I went everywhere. You know, it's interesting you say that because New York City is one place where I feel so comfortable and I bring my entire self to it because I am not worried about speaking Urdu or Pashto or being the person that I am. Because there are so many other people around me speaking different languages, wearing different kinds of clothes, coming from different cultures and ethnicities. And it's such a nice feeling to have. So let's let's move to the report, because this report covers immigration, immigrant identity, how immigration is viewed, especially within the news ecosystem. And in the beginning, in the intro, I talked about what the report is called. And you focus basically on North Carolina as the case study state. And I wonder why North Carolina? We saw North Carolina as
0: a bellwether for the nation, both politically and journalistically. Let's start with the journalism. North Carolina is dominated by one major newspaper chain, and that newspaper chain, McClatchy, is owned by a hedge fund. So this is pretty indicative of the climate around the country, and it is, despite what we have read on some negative aspects of a hedge fund owning. I, I do think that they, in North Carolina, the, the three major newspapers, the Charlotte Observer and the News and Observer of Raleigh and the Durham Sun, which they're all connected, I think they're trying. However, as we've seen with Gannett and layoffs, and there are just so many unknowns when you have a hedge fund running a newspaper chain. It's not great business right now. So what happens? So in this gap, you have nonprofit news organizations starting up, and you have national public radio sites gaining strength. And but with limited
1: resources. With limited resources.
0: And you also have community news, ethnic newspapers, and digital websites Digital sites that are growing their journalism for the community, not just about the community, but for, by, and with the community. So I saw this as really indicative of what you're seeing across the country. Politically, as we saw last night in the midterms, (laughs) um, it's a swing state, swinging towards the right. And as we saw in our audience surveys, well, it is a bummer or an opportunity or it is what it is. But here's the key, and this is why we went to North Carolina. This state has doubled its population of immigrants in 20 years. And what we're seeing across the United States is a growth of immigrant population. It is a trend, and you see it in North Carolina. You see it in other states as well, but you really see it here. And yes, it started with immigrants really from Mexico and Central America in the late 90s, early 2000s. But now you're seeing Asian immigrants, African Mm -hmm. immigrants, Eastern European immigrants, certainly Ukrainians and Venezuelans are coming. So it is it's a hot spot right now. And how local news approaches the coverage of, of diverse communities is so key. Even if it isn't going to translate immediately in politics, it certainly is part of conversation.
1: Right. Who is your intended audience for this particular report, and what is the goal? Calling all editors.
0: Calling all news decision-makers. Any of you who may be listening to this, you are our target audience. If you are listening to this and you say, hey, wait, my uncle (laughs) is at a newspaper or my uncle is, um, you know, doing something. If you are not of the generation, but you know somebody who is, please contact me. (laughs) So this is we want to make change in newsrooms, in stations, in Living rooms (laughs) where news is created. Talk me through that change. Wow. Okay, so change is hard. (laughs) Um, Our intended audience and the goal, your second question, is grand systemic change. And for newsrooms to be covering the communities and reflecting the communities that the demographics actually show. And it's really the responsibility of newsrooms to cover their full communities. And it's not just when a tragedy strikes or there's crisis or there's a crime. You have to understand who lives in your neighborhoods. It's not just being responsible. It's also good business. How is it good business? So the goal is, first of all, let me get back to this. The Hmm. The goal is to have this change not only in the people who cover it, but in the subjects that they cover more consistent coverage, and more coverage that is integrated into other topics beyond just immigration. Sadia, I want to bring in a really powerful metric that Mm. we had in our report. So we worked with the University of Florida's Center for Public Interest Communications, and my research director at Define American, Sarah Lowe, had reached out to them, and they— collaborated with us, and they did this fascinating research audience survey of news consumers. And here's what they found. Well, first, news consumers are a little bit negative (laughs) Mm. about what they believe immigration and uh, the the storylines with immigrants. So we found that 46% of news consumers do have negative views or stereotypical views that are false about immigrants such as that they're a burden on society, they commit crimes, basically the the stereotypes that the GOP is really pushing.
1: Hmm.
0: However, while we don't know if people change their minds about this, writing or distributing a story, producing a story about immigrants that also intersects with sports and business can help people think more positively about the immigrants in the story. So for instance, there's a team of cricket players. (laughs) This cricket team uh, is pretty extraordinary in outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. Now, remember, Raleigh is part of the research triangle, and it has seen a very large influx of mostly Indian, but Pakistani Hmm. and Bangladeshi immigrants in the Research Triangle. There also happened to be some pretty great cricket players, and they formed this minor league cricket team. And, all right, remember, North Carolina is a basketball bastion and also football. Uh, A little bit now with soccer, but cricket? Yeah, actually cricket. So... This wonderful reporter, Laura Brasche, from the News and Observer of Raleigh, wrote about how this team actually convinced the town to expand their cricket facilities. Mm. And this brought in business, and it made for a really great story, too. But let's not forget who's consuming this news, people who are immigrants themselves. And so if they want to read the story, they might have to buy a subscription to the News and Observer. See where I'm going here? Right. So for news editors, this is good business. Ah. By covering your community fully, you may also increase your audience, which may increase your advertising, which may increase your revenue. Bottom line. Bottom
1: line. Right. This is a very interesting line of reasoning, Liz, but I just want to pause here, and there's one thing that's been nagging me. Yes. Is the rationale for humanizing immigrants, right? So either we present them as mm-hmm. good for the economy, for business, or we must demonstrate the goodness in immigrants just like everybody else. By setting this imperative, mm-hmm. it is implied that immigrants are not inherently at the same standard as white folks, right? So overemphasizing immigrants' personhood Mm -hmm. draws attention to othering them more, right? I am so glad that
0: you put this out there. First of all, of all the interviews I've had this month about this report, you're the first person to recognize this, and it's something we talked about. Are we perpetuating the model immigrant? Right. Because you have this good immigrant and bad immigrant. When people are very complex, it's nuanced. It's not just, well, I'm good for society, so you have to really uplift this. Why can't we just focus on people who are average and not contributing, but just being here. It's a really good question. And it is othering by saying, oh, look, they're just like us. It is actually pointing out that they're not like us, but we should think of them this way. And then already we're getting to the us and them.
1: Exactly. It
0: is a problem that we're not solving right away. But I hope that it gets us there. You have to start somewhere. Right. Right. but but keep going on this. This
1: is fascinating. So how do we normalize no. the immigrant experience without burdening immigrants to meet a certain threshold of goodness? Do you think we should park words like good people, good for the society? They are not criminals because they are good. We are all human. We all want to be looked at as three-dimensional characters. Yes, there is goodness in us, but then we have weaknesses, fears and anxieties, strengths and whatever, right? How do we shift that narrative? Is there a language or vernacular Mm -hmm. that needs to be reconfigured or changed? Brilliant question.
0: I have a hard time with the word good. Who's defining good? Yeah, And if you go back to the name of our organization, Define American, we are constantly questioning our definitions.
1: I like that.
0: I will go back and say that we've had this debate about good journalism and bad journalism. And I don't want to use those words. One of the very first research projects that I worked on when I got to Define American was about language around the border. So you have to give people alternatives instead of crisis, wave, (laughs) you know, the fear-based words. So what do you say? More neutral words. Increase. And instead of good, we try and say for journalism, humanizing. Right. Again, that is also a little bit weighted, but it's, it's more specific. So I will go back to what is good journalism? It uses data. Research and complicates the narrative. It does not streamline it. So, for instance, this cricket team actually disbanded this yeah. past year because there was infighting in the group. And so I don't know the full story, but it's just an, uh, an interesting sideline. But another team formed, hmm. and it's still good for the community. But it just to show that the narrative that we all love. Is more complex than we think. right? So how do we not other? We do our due diligence. We base it on fact, and we also put this into our report as well. Try and find sources that are different. Don't just say, well, I'm going to go to an advocate or I'm going to go to a lawyer. No, just find somebody in the community, talk to an immigrant, but also do that responsibly. Maybe that immigrant doesn't want to use his or her or their name. Hmm. And be very careful with this. Remember, there are people who live in split-status families who may not be documented and who, by talking, may endanger a relative. You have to be really kind. There's so many things to think of at the same time. I would just caution editors and reporters to realize that things are not that simple.
1: And on the flip side, let's talk about the news ecosystem itself. Mm. How diverse is that? And what does diversity really mean? Are we just checking boxes and Mm. getting people on board because we think it will, you know, somehow fulfill our DEI initiatives? Or are we hiring people who have a better or a nuanced understanding of their communities and where they come from? Why are you not in a newsroom somewhere?
0: (laughs) You need to be in a newsroom. You're terrific. You are asking the right questions. But you've never worked in journalism. No, I'm an activist. Well, you're asking the right questions. This is terrific. Yeah. DEI is a way in. The same way humanizing is a way in. The same way the bottom line for editors is a way in to start covering this. One of the things that was really stark in our research, we we looked at the demographics, and uh, we also used another company, Media Ecosystems Analysis Group. So the fastest growing in numbers immigrant population, the AAPI community. It's the Asian-American. The Asian-American and Pacific Islander community in North Carolina. But also you see this trend across the United States. So what we see are immigrant stories that are very Latinx focused, which is terrific. There are small online newspapers and there are radio stations and the collaborations are most vibrant there. But what's lost is the AAPI community. The Asian immigrant community is getting lost and it is extremely diverse. So I'm talking about the Asian community in in the research triangle, but also Greensboro, where the Vietnamese are settling. It is so diverse, and there's 28.5 percent. I'm looking at our stats here. That's almost a third. It's almost a third of the immigrant population, and yet less than 5 percent of the stories are about them.
1: So, Liz, I have a theory around that. Please, sure. And please feel free to debunk it if if it doesn't make sense. I feel it goes back to prevalent narratives we have, Mm -hmm. because most of the times we present immigrants, at least in the news and the media ecosystem, in binaries, right? So either criminals or victims. Exactly. And we have also set aside the AAPI community for the model minority Minority. idea. Mm -hmm. Right? I think since the AAPI community doesn't fit into that prevalent narrative in America, we don't showcase them as much in the media. That's my theory. It's a good theory. Hmm. I'm going to counter
0: with the reality. And that is there just aren't enough resources right now. Hmm. And not that it should be an excuse, but we spoke to a terrific editor for the Triad City Beat, North Carolina. She's Asian American. And she said, I'm really frustrated. We are not covering the community as well as we should. But there's like, we only have a few staff members and we're reactive and we shouldn't be reactive, but we're doing the best we can. Now, I do know that Sayaka and her organization, her news operation, to get some great funding recently. So hopefully that will change. But money is really an issue in newsrooms everywhere.
1: Oh, my gosh. Let's talk about money. Let's talk talk about about money. Money.
0: (laughs) Show me the money.
1: In a capitalistic society, how can we not talk about the money? Well, and journalism. I mean, you know, follow the money, right? Right.
0: (laughs) Woodward and Bernstein, it still goes back to that, just a different context. So let's
1: talk about the funding sources. Yeah. Who are the people who are funding news outlets, legacy news outlets, nonprofit? How do we redirect funding to authentic storytelling and authentic news reporting?
0: So I would say that, and this has been a little bit in the news, a bit controversial because there are foundations that work, like the Institute for Nonprofit News, that work directly. They're kind of the umbrella organization or the local online news publishers, uh, Lion. I think they do great work. The best thing to do is to contribute directly to the online news organizations themselves. That's nonprofit. The interesting thing is we focus on Enlace Latino and see, you know, it's like a five-person operation and they won all these wonderful awards, but they're still looking for funding. So they go for grants and normally You can't just rely on one grant. You have to rely on several at a a time. So collaborations are really key. So I'm going to get into two other organizations that are really the backbone right now of local immigration reporting. There's Solutions Journalism Network that funds really work that is not just about a community, but for and by and with the community. And it is what it says, you know, trying to find solutions rather than and carry on. Uh, a story from the beginning and then following up to see if solutions actually were enacted. That's number one. Number two is Report for America. So this is, I don't know if you're familiar with Report for America, but they fund, they underwrite more than 300 positions across the country. So they actually, on the one hand, they are providing young talent for newsrooms to cover their marginalized and previously underserved communities. It's on the Teach for America model. And so it's service journalism at its finest. It can also be a crutch for legacy news operations because Report for America pays half their salary. And then that's the first year. And then the next year, it's a portion. And then it goes on from there. And it's a temporary position. So it's almost like, oh, we can afford to do this, like you said, checking a DEI box, if Report for America is involved. So it almost makes them say, oh, we don't need to keep this a permanent position. That doesn't happen everywhere. For example, WFAE, the radio station in Charlotte that I focused on um, that we Mm. wrote about, they have this position, even though it changes every three years, they have made it permanent where the reporter covers the Latino community and consultation and collaboration with La Noticia, the oldest newspaper in the state, Spanish language newspaper, mm-hmm. printed newspaper. So these are great advances. Where else does funding come? We're waiting. <laughs> what can consumers do to move the needle? Well they can purchase a subscription. <laughs> yeah. Uh I've been delighted, actually, even though McClatchy would not allow me to speak to its reporters, which I found so frustrating because it actually could have helped them. And so uh, we had to do this whole cricket story without getting the, the details, knowing how many subscriptions increased after the story, knowing what the, the metrics were. On the other hand, they are trying to do more with less. So you can subscribe. You can, you know, donate to NPR. You can read and engage. You can talk to journalists. Mm. You could suggest stories. Oh, my goodness, you know, tip lines. That used to be a thing. And now we, well, we were doing it on Twitter, but don't know how long we will be doing that. That's to be determined. So,
1: Liz, I was going to ask you about social media, right? My 16-year-old gets all her information. TikTok? TikTok. Yeah. Everything from news, politics, food, fashion. Yep. It's all TikTok. How has that Mm -hmm. influenced what's happening within the traditional news outlets space?
0: Great question. Again, I have been to two huge journalism conferences, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists in conjunction with the National Association of Black Journalists in Las Vegas in the summer. And I was just at the Society of Professional Journalists Conference, mostly for student journalists in D.C. And the two biggest, other than the Woodward and Bernstein lecture, the two biggest panels, most well-attended throughout the door, you know, all the way out the door, was the TikTok. (laughs) This isn't going away. And you know who has done the best job with this? The Washington Post. The Washington Post TikTok is like they were on it early. So news really is entertainment. And we have to evolve. And we have to evolve. And it's really interesting because both of the news executives that I talked to, the Telemundo executive Daniel Vioto, who is older than I am, and it was born in Argentina, and he's like, this is the wave of the future. And he said, right now, however, we're still connecting via Facebook for a lot of our—so immigrant households are divergent, right? The older generation is Facebook and Instagram. But I think like is,
1: Facebook is just dying, even for older oh, yeah. generations. Well,
0: today, the news It's I mean, dead. Yeah. I feel like it's Metahead dead. layoffs. Oh, it's totally dead. I mean, you know, my godchildren will laugh at me. But <laughs> I mean, I just, I end up posting there because Instagram posts it back on Facebook. But no, TikTok is the way to go. And news organizations need to recognize this. And they are. NBC is doing a fantastic job. Hmm. Video is everything. And the sooner we realize how to do this. Like, this report gives us a foundation, and now we need to look more critically at how do we package it.
1: Right. Especially
0: before 2024.
1: You know, it's interesting what you said about TikTok, because Immigrantly has a very small presence on TikTok, (laughs) and I have to make these really, as my kids would call it, cringy videos, because that's the only way. Well, they should make them. I am enjoying it in a very weird way. I don't know. What's fun about it? I don't know. It's me being me and not worrying. And I'm like, nobody's going to judge me. What, like a 15-year-old will judge me? No, they won't. I think this... Okay, they will, but they won't tell you. They they won't tell you, right? Or it's so liberating in a way. It's like, just be yourself. Nobody will care. And you can express your thoughts and ideas. So yeah, I mean, TikTok is, it's fun. If you haven't tried it, Liz, do try it. Oh,
0: no, I have tried it. Our very first video, which you can go back to on Define American, we put it on TikTok. (laughs) And it, it was about language at the border. Hello. It looks like you've been watching news coverage about the U.S. southern border. Have you noticed a common theme? Crisis, wave, surge. These terms make immigrants seem like a dangerous force to be feared. Recently, we analyzed the ratio of negative to neutral terms that news outlets use. We found some troubling results. TV news was 2.5 times more likely to use negative terms than newspapers. Local papers close to the border used neutral language about 25% more than national papers. CNN used 15 times more negative words than PBS NewsHour. Dehumanizing metaphors are not new. We saw anti-immigrant rhetoric make waves in the early 1900s. Words matter. After the backlash from those surge and crisis headlines, President Biden retreated from his promise to accept more refugees. Define American is committed to studying and combating the use of this negative terminology. Like this content? Hit plus. So we made the one-minute video for TikTok. We're, we are producing a one-minute video out of our long four-minute video about the project, and that's, that's still being worked on right now. But, no, I agree with you. Yeah. I can see this. And you have to make it fun. You have to make it
1: accessible, but also
0: creative.
1: Right. Right. This, I want to go back to something that we talked about earlier in terms of there being dissonance between the increasing demographic and their representation in the media. And I just want to clarify that we want solutions that help all different minorities without pitting one group against the other or hurting one group or the other. How do we do that? Because there are limited resources. Right. I mean, on the one hand, we have just called this out. Uh, the inequity. Mm.
0: On the other hand, well, you know, the Latinx population is, well, this is actually really helping us. You know, who's to say that just because, you know, one community is not benefiting, you, you, you cannot compare. Right. I mean, that's, that is the whole thing. This is not a comparison game. This is not a game. I think news organizations need to recognize it first and then not check boxes, and not do a story just to do a story. And, and I'm not saying, you know, you, you have to go into a community and get sources. So partner with organizations. Work with advocates to say, who should I talk to? I think that's really the key because inevitably something will happen. Back, you know, 40 minutes ago, I was talking about the Uzbek community and I covered them in a crisis, in a tragedy. Mm-hmm. But then... I I kept up these sources, and so I was prepared for the next time. But it's just checking in and getting to know people, to have the curiosity and to spend that extra time. One thing that we haven't talked about that I do want to add, and I think this is really crucial, is rural reporting. Here we are in New York City, and so we don't think about it much, but New York has a lot of rural areas right? in addition to the rest of the country. And you see a lot of disparity there, too. And we write about this in North Carolina, in Western North Carolina especially, where there used to be a reporter for the NPR station, and she left the job. There was just too many demands on her, and she wasn't able to do what she wanted to do, and there weren't resources. So I think it's both ethnicity and regionality, religion, there are so many factors that you don't want to pit one group over another or one factor over another. Hmm. Boy, this is a lot for news leaders to take <laughs> in,
1: right? How do you do this if you don't have a lot of money? They should read this report. That's what they need to do. That's the first step. We don't just
0: say, here's what you're not doing. We give recommendations. Right. So I right. think the recommendations boil down to three And then from there, I could explain. But so I have this tagline, and it's integrate, collaborate, educate. Hmm. So this goes back to your original question about the goals. So integrate, going back to sports and business, culture, food. Entertainment. Entertainment, exactly. So highlight and feature communities this way. And then don't make it an immigration story. Make it. Just a story about the topic. A human story. A human story. And then so how—and I'm going to skip to the third one, which is educate. So news organizations aren't going to have a lot of money, even though we are saying have someone cover immigrant communities, diverse communities, whatever you want to call it. Have someone do that. But if they don't have someone, then train people who are covering— courts and cops and business and sports hmm. to understand how to cover immigrants responsibly language and what what the law what the basic laws are I mean people don't understand the complexity of asylum law or using the term undocumented and what that means especially if people may have temporary protected status so Educate newsrooms. So at Define American, I'm developing this program. I have a one-hour seminar that we do on Zoom, but I can also go into newsrooms and give people these awesome pens, which I just gave you, and have us go in and open up a forum. And, you know, people can suggest ideas. So that's the integrate and the educate. And the middle part is collaborate. Okay. So you're you're a— Legacy Newsroom, and you want to perhaps collaborate with a podcast that I was going may to be about that. yes, Muslim Americans, such as in uh, UNC Chapel Hill. There's a, a great podcast that's going on that we focus in here. So find, think outside the box, find other partners. I know there's a lot of hesitation about so-called objectivity in journalism, and we could have a whole another our discussion about that. But there's something to be said about experience, lived experience. And journalists are starting to recognize that, oh, maybe you can cover immigration if you are an immigrant. There are immigrants, there are DACA recipients who are covering immigration. It's just like, you know, telling me, oh, you can't cover sports because you're a woman. Or you can only cover women's sports. Let's just think outside hmm. the box here.
1: And decenter to yourself. Exactly. Sometimes that happens a lot, too. But I love all those ideas. Liz, where can people find this report? So you can go on our website, defineamerican.com.
0: And uh, you can see the story of our founder, Jose Antonio Vargas, who, of course, a Pulitzer Prize winner who came out as undocumented in The New York Times in 2011. And then right under his story is our report, which is Reimagining Immigration News, North Carolina's Case for the Nation. I also wrote a piece uh, for Poynter, the industry organization, the institute that examines and educates journalists. And Uh, we can put
1: that in our show notes and put it on
0: our website. It has a little uh, introduction about how I used to cover basketball in the state of North Carolina. And then, you know, fully, this is not a
1: Duke Carolina matchup. And that's what's so great about it. But before I let you go, Liz, I have another question that I ask all Ah. my guests. This is a fun question. If you were to define America in a word or a sentence or a phrase, how would you do that?
0: long pause. (laughs) This is my work. I don't even know if I can boil it down into one, but vibrantly
1: complex and human. I like that. I like the human word. You know, I've interviewed almost 200 folks. Nobody's ever used human for America. Strange. And if they have, I'm sorry. I don't remember.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's our theme today, too. Humanizing and and what exactly does that mean? Oh, this is so much fun. I could talk forever.
1: I had so much fun. And guys, there's so much more in this report. I've read it. I love it. We were trying to condense everything into an R and to know Liz better. So we weren't able to cover a lot of stuff. Just go on Define Americans' website. Look at the report, download it. And there's some other really great stuff on our website, too. I mean, we have uh, a YouTube
0: report about uh, <laughs> extremism and disinformation campaigns uh, that my colleague, Shauna Sikokos, has been working on. It's really important. And then uh, diversity reports and entertainment and all the work we do there, as well as protecting immigrant storytellers. Mm. So I'm really lucky to be part of this small community at Define American and bringing journalism into our core goal, and that is to change the narrative. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Liz. This
1: was wonderful.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Sadia.
1: Thank you. Wow, this was a lot of fun. I felt as if I've known Liz for years. We had a fun, interesting, introspective, informational conversation. Please don't forget to check out this report. It's an important piece of information, important piece of journalism that we all need to read, understand, internalize. This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan, written by... UDLU. Editorial review by UDLU as well. Our editor for this particular episode is Hazek. Until next time, take care.